0: Hi everyone, I'm Mary Morton, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground, a semi-weekly podcast where with each episode, a special guest and I will explore what it looks like to survive and thrive in the nonprofit industrial complex. We're going to look closely at racial equity, diversity and inclusion. Today, our guest will be Katha Morris-Hoffer, Executive Director of the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. And I have to say, I've known the for many, many years. We've done a lot of work together. I hope we've created some disruption along <laughs> the way, but welcome to Gathering Ground, Katha.
1: Oh, thank you. I am just tickled tickled <laughs> to be here. I'm, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. We, we have a lot we're going to talk about. There's so many things we could uh, cover and we don't have all the time in the world, but we we have some time. I hope hopefully we'll we'll get to many of those items. And first of all, let's set the context. You work now as the executive director of the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, mm-hmm. and we will refer to that as Case Great. moving yep. forward. <laughs> um, but but I al- always like to start um, our conversations with a grounding in who you are as a person mm-hmm. and how you came to your current. Uh, position. So, t- take us back a few years and tell us tell us where you were born and and how did you get from there to here? Well, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and
1: I feel like one of those apples that didn't fall far from the tree. Um, my parents um, are progressive, um, socially uh, people, and they discovered um, Quakerism when I was a kid, um, and I started going to a Quaker summer camp, um, and and um uh, that is where when I was in junior high I discovered that I was a feminist um and learned a lot about the history of social justice movements in the United States and America.
0: Well let me let me stop you for a second mm-hmm. and tell tell us what it's like to be in a Quaker school and So you weren't just going to the school where you were you a practicing Quaker, if you will? Yeah. Well, I didn't go to Quaker school. It was just Quaker camp in the summer. Quaker camp in the summer. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: But Quakerism is this like very lefty tradition, right? It's loosely within the Christian tradition, Uh but it its basic premise is that all humans are equal. And what a concept! I know, right? (laughs) Uh (laughs) And so there's no difference between anybody. There aren't pastors. A Quaker meeting is just when people gather together in silence, and um, and then when they're moved to speak, they stand and, and speak, and that's sort of considered ministry. But Quakers, um, as I began to learn when I was in elementary school and junior high, um, Quakers were heavily involved in the Underground Railroad and the movements for abolition and suffrage and the anti-war movements. Um, and so... As I was growing up and discovering that I was a feminist and sort of learning what that meant for me personally, um i I had this incredibly supportive community. Um, and just a lot of wisdom around me that was constantly attending to the current manifestations of inequality and social injustice. Um, so, i was i felt I was incredibly lucky in that way,
0: very very it's it sounds like very fortunate to have that kind of atmosphere, and from there, you as you said, you discovered that you were a feminist mm-hmm. and and <laughs> was that a particular um occasion or or just at you know through your readings and experiences, you realized this is a label that I embrace
1: well, it was at summer camp mm-hmm. being surrounded by these incredible women who were helping all the girls in the camps. Um, learn how to do carpentry and forestry and farming and gardening and kayaking and living simply at the same time and engaging with the anti nuclear movement. And, um, you know, uh, my counselors had ERA now buttons, oh, and yes. you know, things mm-hmm. happened like I, I. Got to know all these incredible women and these girls, and the environment was much more integrated than my um, my community where I where I lived during the school year. Um, so I was in cabins with girls from very different backgrounds than me, um, uh, black girls and South Asian girls, and um, and and living closely with people who had you know again very different backgrounds than me, but we were all you know learning songs about. Harriet Tubman and in, That's incredible. Yeah. And in, because you
0: think about it, I'm sorry, just to say that yeah. there are many young folks, students now who don't learn that in school, as you know.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I learned it at camp. Mm-hmm. I can still sing songs, not well, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but about Harriet Tubman and Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, and um I know a song called Let's Go Down to Seneca Falls. <laughs>
0: wow.
1: Um That's incredible. Yeah, and and then I would sort of come back to my more normal environment in Ann Arbor. Um, and Was it culture shock going back to Ann Arbor? Yeah, it was, except that I had Quaker meeting on Sundays That where I was sort of still, oh, okay. you know, every weekend I would be surrounded by, you know, people in their 60s and 70s who'd been conscientious objectors during World War II or were tax resistors or, you know, were engaged in um, – uh, in exposing the realities of the AIDS
0: epidemic. and So just various forms of protest.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I wrote my first letter, my first I write letter to the president. Um, it was to President Reagan um, and... Uh, it was not effective, but um,
0: <laughs> but it's the act. <laughs> the act matters,
1: <laughs> and it was celebrated in my meeting. Like they were very Absolutely. excited about it.
0: That's very exciting.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Um, and and then what really led directly to the work I do now is that Planned Parenthood uh, ran a program um, in the local high school, and uh, I also was discovering when I was in junior high and high school that I was really fascinated. Um, by sex. Okay. <laughs> and all right. Things sexual. Um, okay. And so I took this really intensive semester-long course that allowed me to then apply for a job at Planned Parenthood, and they hired ah. me, and they actually paid me to be an embedded peer educator in my high school. And so, do they still do that? I don't know. That's
0: a really interesting idea. Oh, it was and so I, smart. I can see how it would be very effective.
1: Yeah, incredibly smart because teenagers want to learn about sex and sexuality That's right. from their peers. I mean, and they and, do
0: not want their parents talking to them about that. No,
1: no. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> no. Um, and so Planned Parenthood gave me an education and gave me support. And I had a bulletin board and I wrote articles for the school newspaper. And teachers um, would call on me to come into their classrooms and I would alternate between just doing a straight up lecture on all the forms of birth control and doing basically a guided conversation called roles and responsibilities, where I would just have students engage in um, dialogue about if they thought it was sort of a girl's role or a boy's role to be, you know, the one to ask someone out on a date or to initiate a kiss or to set limits or to initiate conversations about sex, all these things. And the way we would do it is, you know, we would have conversations. And when somebody would say something that was particularly sexist, um, you know, we, we would have a space where I could either stand up and say, well, here's another perspective that other students I've heard say, or another student would stand up and say that. And we could expose sort of the the different ideas
0: that people had and create a safe space. Um, anyways. Well, I, I I'd say that was probably great foundation, a great foundation for your, your time in law school and since then and all <laughs> yeah. the work you've done, right? I mean right. You, you started early it seems.
1: I did. I did. And and the really what led me to the work I do now is that in addition to um, my fellow students coming to me for inf- with for information and resources about birth control and things like that, people started disclosing to me about their experiences of sexual violation um and um people started disclosing to me about the difficulties they were having when they were you know realizing they were gay or lesbian mm-hmm. and at that time in the mid 80s it was even scarier um mm-hmm. than it is now for folks to come out yeah absolutely and so boy i started getting a a a a real a, a lot of lessons in how our society responds um generally pretty horribly um, to people who have experiences that are different, that
0: are, that are different, that are just different. Yeah, really. At the end of the day, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, I, as I said, this really is a clear um, line in terms of the work that you you do now and and how it all began. Well, let's let's move forward. And then you went to college. Why had, did you go to law school? Because um,
1: I, I had thought that I wanted to be a social worker to work on sexual violation issues, and then. My college. I observed how my college, my beloved community, responded poorly when it had the opportunity to confront a um, a sexual predator inside the community, and it was disheartening. And one of the people in the administration who was really smart and clear headed about how to deal with it was a lawyer, and um, I saw that. And then I also kind of thought that a law degree um, might. Be the kind of tool that would help me do that advocacy that I wanted to do. I mean, fundamentally, when I was in high school, what I learned was there was a lot that needed to be done. And I was standing next to survivors and people struggling with their identities and feeling really sort of powerless. All I could do was say, I care and I'm here. And my whole career has essentially been an effort to be more helpful and to feel more helpful in that in that work.
0: That that Well, we're going to continue and we're going to get much deeper into what you've been doing, but I want to just give our listeners a little bit of your background. Um, so you've worked um, with Equality Now, the United Nations. Um, you've worked at the state level. Um, you've been on the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women in Illinois. I think we may have crossed during that time. Um, and you've worked on... I know several important pieces of legislation, the Civil No Contact Order Act and the Victims Employment Safety and Security Act. Um, of course, we were at uh, the city of Chicago in the mayor's office at the same time. We <laughs> we crossed a little bit there. Um, and, and before you became the executive director at CASE, you were the organization's legal director and then the deputy executive director. So tell us how you came to CASE.
1: Well, in
0: 2005,
1: I had spent many years um, trying to support efforts to pass uh, really good civil rights legislation in Illinois related to sexual harm and violation. And a bunch of laws existed that weren't being used, and there weren't organizations or entities really uh, well positioned to take advantage of them. So in 2005, I opened up a, a private law practice Um, And I continued to do legislative advocacy on a volunteer basis, which is essentially the way I worked with Equality Now, the way I worked with the Governor's Commission. Um, And explain what you mean by legislative advocacy. Well, collaborating with um, organizations and individuals who have expertise, um, who try to make sure legislators create laws that are useful to respond to Um, rape and sexual violence and sexual inequality. Um, So as a member of the Governor's Commission, um, I helped champion the efforts to get past the Illinois Gender Violence Act. That was really my baby. And then I did a lot of work um, promoting and supporting efforts that were led um, by other organizations like the Shriver Center. Uh, The Victims, Employment, Safety, and Security Act was their baby. But I was able to use my role on the commission to help Open doors and spaces for that, and get it get it through. Um, but so I I decided to you know take a risk and try to use my law degree um, to make use of these laws. And uh, I spent a couple of years doing that. And at the same time, my dear friend Rachel Derschlag had opened up the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation um, to focus on the demand side of the sex trade through prevention education and um, uh, awareness raising and research with men who buy sex. And that was simultaneous to work that I was doing, um, legislative advocacy related to, at the international level, the definition of sex trafficking, at the state level, creating civil rights laws like the Illinois Predator Accountability Act for survivors. In Illinois, people who'd been harmed or exploited in the sex trade, and In 2008, we realized um, that we should come together. I had had realized that I should make my private law practice into a nonprofit so that I could get funding for the legislative work. And Rachel became the first president of my board of directors. And we quickly sort of realized, why don't we come together? So in 2009, Case adopted my then-fledgling nonprofit, and expanded to um, have a mission of addressing not just commercial sexual exploitation, um, prostitution and sex trafficking, but the full range of sexual harm. So that's when CASE came into being. And since then, we've had four pillars to our work, prevention education, policy and legislative advocacy, uh, direct legal services, and uh, community engagement.
0: All right, so that gives you this setting in which to do deeper work, broader work. So one of the questions I, I have for you is that often, and I know this because I've done work with you, um, there is a misunderstanding of what CASE does versus an organization, uh, let's say another organization in Chicago, Resilience, right, uh-huh. which used to be rape victim advocates. There's a um, often just a, what's the word I'm looking for? People are confused mm-hmm. and think that you you also provide direct services. So can you just talk about the distinction between an organization uh, like Resilience, for instance, and an organization like CASE?
1: Right. The only direct services that CASE provides are legal services. So we're not um, available for the multiple Needs that that people who've been harmed either in prostitution or outside that context who've been harmed through sexual assault, um, we don't provide initial crisis management, counseling, support services. Um, we exist to address the the legal needs and op- and provide lawyers who can create opportunities um, to use law to uh, help improve. Um, survivors' lives in the aftermath of sexual violence. We, um, we collaborate closely with all of our sisters and brothers in the Rape Crisis Center organization space, um, both on um, getting connected to the survivors who have a need for legal representation, um, but we also collaborate with them on identifying mechanisms um, for improving the systems uh, that that impact and interact with survivors of sexual harm. Whether those systems are the, the ways in which the criminal justice system continues to um, uh, harm and go after women in the sex trade, um, whether it's the ways in which schools continue to be incompetent at responding to students who are experiencing sexual violation, um, uh, etc.
0: So before we take a break, I want to just talk a little bit about the commercial sex trade and Mm -hmm. have you explain what that is to our listeners and then we'll pick that up on the other side of our break.
1: What I'm talking about is the industry that encompasses prostitution, pornography, stripping, the the place where there are lots of people making an enormous amount of money from a commercialized sex. Um, And let me begin by saying that I don't have any objection to prostitution in theory um, and case doesn't take a position on prostitution in theory I would never waste five minutes let alone a career trying to interfere with the ability of um, two equally situated um, adults um, negotiating you know the exchange of of sex for compensation um, but what research makes, enormously clear is that the overwhelming majority of women and men and boys and girls, whether cis or transgendered, who are involved in um, providing sex for uh, compensation are involved in circumstances that don't involve anything resembling the kinds of choices that are available to people who have choices. And furthermore, um, the levels of of violence and harm that are inflicted upon the supply side of the sex industry are, are really staggering. And what Case believes and what I believe profoundly is that we need to have social systems and responses that address what is mostly true about the industry. And what is mostly true about the industry is that it is making an enormous amount of money for a very limited group of privileged people, um, while um, people who are primarily um, or disproportionately black and brown um, living with circumstances of extreme poverty, histories of of radical levels of abuse, are getting harmed and not are not making their way from a circumstance of vulnerability to a circumstance of um, freedom or health in it. Um, and so that's what Case seeks to to respond to.
0: And so tell us an example of how you would interrupt that kind of activity.
1: Well, one of the ways we interrupted is our End Demand Illinois campaign. We, uh, we led Illinois to become the very first state in the nation to completely prohibit the arresting or criminalization of anybody under the age of 18 in the sex trade. Up until 2010, um, Illinois was uh, among all the states in the country that allowed 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds to be prosecuted for engaging in prostitution, Um, even though it's long been recognized that folks under the age of 18 who are involved in the sex trade are victims of a severe form of sex trafficking. So that was the first law that we passed, and I'm glad to say that lots of other states have followed suit um, one of the other things we did is that Illinois allowed um, prosecutors to charge women in the sex trade or men in the sex trade with felonies for being engaged in prostitution. We got rid of that. Um, we helped improve the the legal definition of sex trafficking before um, the year that we improved the, the law. There hadn't been any prosecutions of traffickers in Illinois under the code. Since then, there have been... Um, uh, hundreds. Um, Not that we think that increasing the jail population is is the answer to this problem. Um, I am comfortable with, you know, some traffickers facing some jail time. But the other things that we've done have been we've um, increased the incentives for police to go after buyers and hit them with financial fines. Um, We created a, a fund at the state level that would provide organizations serving people impacted by the sex trade with with resources. And we've set it up so that that, that fund ought to be populated with money coming out of the wallets of men who would, are seeking to buy sex. Because what we know about men who seek to buy sex and do buy sex, overwhelmingly sex buyers are men who have disposable income. And who don't have any fear of the criminal justice system, because they're typically in groups that the criminal justice system ignores. Um, and these are these are guys who can be deterred. And and frankly, the only reason there is sex trafficking. The only reason there are any people in the sex industry who are there as a result of force or fraud or coercion um rather than choice or liberation, is because the demand is so much greater than the supply. The reason that you force somebody into an industry is because you can't get enough people to do that work
0: without exerting force and coercion. Well, that's exactly right. And I think people don't think about it in those terms.
1: Right. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I say is whenever I'm talking about prostitution or sex trafficking is that for every 100 people who are involved in it, um, 90 of them are buyers. And that's a very,
0: very high ratio.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mostly we're talking about a problem of 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 men seeking to buy something that very few people want to do. Um, and the men who buy are relying on um, push factors like poverty and desperation and control factors like pimps and traffickers to provide them with access to um, girls and women and boys and men, again, both cis and trans, who mostly would be doing something else. Um, if they had those opportunities. And and overwhelmingly, men who buy sex, who thankfully are a minority of the population overall, um, they are much less naive about the circumstances of people in the sex trade than are the majority of, of men and women in our community who don't have any direct engagement with it. Um, but buyers really rely on sort of collective naivete about the sex industry to argue that, prostitution is liberation, um, or that, um, or or that, uh, prostitution should be treated like work, just like any other, most of the survivors that I work with say to me things like, um, you know, I know what work is. Work is a place where you can go and get paid for, for the work that you do. And you have a right to, to be protected from people putting their hands on your ass.
0: Well that, that that well, that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? Um, at the end of the day, what's considered work and what opportunities people have to do something else other than that? Yeah, uh, which we know are extraordinarily limited for some people. That's right. That's all right. Right. All, right. all right. Well this is we're going to continue this conversation. This is all very important. And of course, in in current day, we have lots of examples of how this work has come to light in a different manner. Uh, When we come back from our break, we're gonna talk about Time's Up, we're gonna talk about Me Too, a little bit about R. Kelly and how all of this really has impacted your work and the work of other organizations that work in this this field, whether they do exactly as you do or not, but really how has this uh, movement that's really across the country at this point, but we're feeling it certainly very strongly here in Chicago, What is the impact on your work and and what will it um, lead you to down the road? Mm -hmm. All right, so we'll continue our conversation. We're gonna take a short break. You're listening to Gathering Ground, and today our guest is Kaitha Morris Hoffer. Kaitha is the executive director of the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. I'm Mary Morton and we're back in a moment. Everyone, thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast.com. That's Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast, all one word dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Gathering Ground. Today, our guest is Katha Morris-Hoffer, the executive director of the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. And we've been talking about the commercial sex trade um, and some of the work that Case has been doing for a number of years in this area. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in the world around us with regard to longtime offenders, if you will. People who we know, we've heard in some cases have, have been involved in trafficking women, trafficking young women. Um, also the impact of the Me Too movement and Time's Up. So let's, let's start um, with talking about what's here happening locally in Chicago um, with the R. Kelly um, saga, if you will, in terms of it finally coming to light. Were you surprised that after the documentary, people started to come forward in a in a very very meaningful manner.
1: It's been really wonderful to see finally the the broader culture once again attend to the 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 voices that have that have mostly been coming from um, black women um, trying to point out what what are Kelly. Um, has been up to for so long. Oh, of course, Jim DeRogattis Yes has been... Yes, from Sound Opinions and WBEZ. Uh, mm-hmm. An incredible ally. Um, but like with the Me Too movement, like with Time's Up, um, what's been going on in the last couple of years feels to me like exactly what happens in other eras um, when it has been largely in the United States, um, black women who have led the way and pointed out critical social issues that, that demand attention and response. Um, I mean, you know- And when, nothing happens. No, well- Or very little. Uh, right. Not enough happens. Exactly. Um right. at, at the same time, you know, what I grew up sort of knowing was that, you know, throughout history, there have been women like Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks who- Um, who didn't get ever in their lifetimes the kind of response that they um, deserved. Um, But after their lifetimes were sort of uh, lionized for that work. Um, And, um, you know, when I was in college, watching Anita Hill educate the country about the realities of sex harassment and be treated so horribly. Um, And... So it's time and time again. I mean, it was very familiar to see um, what happened with Anita Hill because I'd I'd grown up sort of knowing kind of social responses to brilliant leaders who were pointing out critical issues. Um, So you know, when R. Kelly was prosecuted the first time a number of years ago, and it was not getting much attention, um, and the the you know mostly um black women in the community who were taking the very unpopular stand then um that he ought to be held accountable for the harm he was causing they were not getting the support they deserved that again was very familiar um and so but po- a, a lot of times i think that um politics is a lot like surfing um in order to surf, right? you have to be a good swimmer and you have to be fit and you know have to know how to stand on a board, <laughs> um, all of or many of those things, n- not things I can do. Um, but then it also requires that a wave comes along. Sometimes things you have absolutely no control over. So thankfully, you know, the documentary producers um, and and other folks like Jim DeRogatis and others um, attended to, again, what women in the local community had been saying um, at an enormous cost to themselves for many years, and and all of a sudden the tide turns like a a wave happens. Um, you know the Me Too movement um, uh, again, another Black woman leading the way, Tarana Burke. Exactly,
0: and well, let me just say here that I think it it was it was sort of waiting in the wings, and it was it was pushed forward. But to your point. There've just been numerous instances where black women have led the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean for years whenever I um do talks about the importance of having civil rights laws that can address sexual violation and the impact that law can have in the in the broader cultural and social fight to end sexual harm. Um I always made a point of of talking about how um Anita Hill and her testimony in front of the Senate created a sea change in awareness uh, about sex harassment rights. But that in in and of itself was built on the fact that the Supreme Court had ruled in 1986 that sex harassment was actually illegal. And that case existed because of a black woman who was the victim of repeated rapes in the workplace um, taking a case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and insisting that it was a violation of her civil rights, and and so it was two black women in the United States who created the rights that that all women uh, and and also men benefit from—the right to have a workplace where you're not sexually harassed or assaulted. Um, and yet, a lot of times, sex harassment was sort of thought of as a white women's issue
0: <laughs> and And, well, that just leads us to, you know, a conversation we may not have an opportunity to touch upon around white supremacy and how the standard is always whiteness yeah. right. and And that this is the group that is most deeply affected when actually that is not the case in most in most cases. That's not how it goes.
1: Yeah, I mean there's the media, so many forces in our society whitewash things. They
0: literally and figuratively. That's, that's right. right. That's right.
1: Um I I remember sort of first learning about this actually when I was a kid. I learned about white privilege from my dad who did not call it that. <laughs> um but he always would talk about how he was so lucky to be born a, a white man in the United States when he was born. Um, and, and he just was very, my dad was smart and hardworking, But one of the things that he was really smart about was noticing how so many other people who were smarter than him um, had a much harder time succeeding. He, he noticed that people gave him more chances and gave him the benefit of the doubt and Presumed good intent by him, and um, and he was just always really clear about that, and helped me start noticing as well how many doors opened for me, how stories about um, talented girls looked like me, and uh, it was it was it was very helpful um, to be raised by somebody who saw. Um, the difference that inequality makes in, in a way that, I mean, he always said he he felt lucky, but it, it wasn't like he thought it was good the way things were. He just noticed that he was getting a lot of stuff that he didn't necessarily earn. And so it was kind of his job to be nice and good and support the, the girls and women in his family. Um, and... And and be grateful because he was conscious that it was so much harder for other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in any event, um, his sort of approach to life helped it be a lot more visible to me as well, how often um, race gets not seen, not identified, and yet it's operating in a way that really is disadvantaging some people and privileging other people.
0: And And... With that in mind, how are you doing the work of CASE in a way that helps support uh, an anti-racist system? Because I know that's something that, that you have talked a lot about and have embedded into your current strategic plan, if right. I recall correctly. <laughs> um, and I'm saying that uh, because I worked on it with with the organization. How are you bringing some of those values to life at Caves?
1: Right. Well, um, uh, we're trying to do it every every way, everywhere, and in every way that we can. So when it comes to sexual violation, there are six discrete and overlapping communities that are disproportionately impacted by all the various forms of sexual violation. they are girls and women, people of color, um, so black women and, and brown women and all the other um, racial and ethnic minorities, um, uh, the LGBTQ community, um, people living in poverty, people with disabilities, and immigrants and undocumented folks. So um, if you want to have responses that really address the needs of people who experience sexual violation, it's imperative to attend to the complex and complicated lives of people who are um, not just living as uh, people who've experienced sexual violation, but are also living as people who may be gay or lesbian or transgendered or um, uh, without documentation. Um, and so um, at CASE, you know, first of all, our work has always been essentially centered on the margins. Our, our By having a policy and legislative campaign that is designed to address um, the way our, our society responds to women in the sex trade, we are talking about um, – disproportionately black women and brown women in the state of Illinois who come from the most impoverished and under-resourced and and, um, attacked and harmed communities. Um, What's different now about the work that we're doing is that we're trying to be a lot more explicit about um, the relationship between all those other forms of inequality um, hierarchies based in race, hierarchies based in physical capacity, hierarchies based in sexual orientation or gender identity, um, and the, the work of addressing um, how sex sexual violation is both a symptom and a cause of inequality. We have a, a new director of community engagement whose whose role is to help us figure out how to um ensure that we are as an organization that our organization is better engaged with and accountable to those again discrete and overlapping communities that exist in Chicago that have um lived experience with sexual harm because they're disproportionately targeted
0: with it and and generally there is an intersectionality so that it's not necessarily distinct communities as you That's say right. they're they're overlapping right <laughs> so i'm not only am i black but i'm trans Um and um and and female and so I have all that that I've got to contend with and by the way I'm dealing with sexual violence.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, all of us live complex lives. That's right. None of us are only one thing. Um, but in a a white supremacist patriarchy, to the extent that some of us have, you know. multiple complexities in our lives that make us additionally vulnerable. We need to be creating community and organizations that are capable of, of responding to that complexity in a way that doesn't sort of require people to say, well, uh, I'm, I'm coming here not as, you know, a person of this race or this
0: gender, but as this other thing. Exactly. There's Right. Uh, people have to show up as their al- in their own authenticity at the end of the day. Yeah, and so it's wonderful to hear that you're you're trying to create a space where that can happen. Tell us how the Me Too and Times Up movement have impacted your work.
1: Well, again, Me Too is just yet another example of you know uh, Black women laying the groundwork, doing incredible work, pointing in the right direction. Um, Toronto Burke uh, did this amazing thing by sort of laying the groundwork for that, um, and then. Um it's it's been a it, it's been a flood of awareness and conversation about these issues in our broader culture um over the last almost well, I guess it's a year and a half now since what I like to call Hurricane Harvey, the initial yes. sort of press coverage of right. Harvey Weinstein. Right. Mm-hmm. Um it has it has been really exciting to be working on these issues in a moment in time where it feels like everybody else is paying attention to them also. Um, Certainly, there's been greater um, interest in the work that CASE does, which has been positive. Um, There have been a lot more people coming to us, which has been a, a challenge because we don't have the resources that we need to have in order to be able to serve as many people as exist who need and deserve resources. We have Wait lists for our prevention education program we've never had before. Um, but um, it's mostly an exciting time where real change seems to be happening. and dialogue is is happening between and among communities of people that are are long overdue. for for years, I've been worried about um the anti- rape movement operating on a uh, on a path that was parallel but not intersecting with the um, the uh, criminal justice reform movement and the incredible leadership um, of folks, particularly from um, uh, black communities across America, to point out the manifest racism and cruelty of our criminal justice system. And it, it does feel like in this era, there is more collaborative conversation between people who want to address sexual harm and violation and people who want to um, find a new way of having the criminal justice system engage with our society and, and who want to um, toss out um, the, it's, its racism and its, and it's cruelty.
0: Well, this is in line with what you uh, talked to our producer about in terms of being really interested in finding the opportunities where activism centered in the imperatives of anti-racist work and criminal justice reform efforts can unite with activism centered on exposing and opposing sexual violation in all the places that it occurs. So that's really the um, sort of overarching goal, if you will.
1: Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, um, if we really allow people who have a lived experience of sexual violation, again, who are people who also disproportionately have a lived experience of the, the problems of, uh, a racist society, we're going to head in the right direction, um, One of the reasons that so few people report to the criminal justice system in the aftermath of rape, a lot of it is because they legitimately and rightly fear that they won't be believed. But a lot of survivors don't seek engagement with the criminal justice system because they fear that it will respond in the way that sort of everybody thinks it will respond, right? Most survivors of sexual violation know the men. Who harm them, and knowing them, and and having that man's humanity be visible to them, means that most survivors of sexual violation don't want to ruin his life, even though they might want some form of accountability, some sort of um, response from their community or their systems that says. What he did was not okay, and what he did was harmful, and he ought to do something that that accounts for that. but again, um, you know if you if you watch TV, you might think that when somebody reports being raped, all of a sudden the police system uh, springs into action. action, right? That is
0: not necessarily <laughs> the case. It's definitely
1: not the case, um, and you might think that rapists get prosecuted and charged, and it is also mostly not the case. Um, but um, it it doesn't mean um, that that survivors don't deserve to have lots of systems that will respond in an appropriate way. And it also, um, you know, I think that that having a criminal justice system is something that probably every society ought to have. Um, and um, the fact that we have not gotten it right yet um, doesn't mean that we, we should give up trying. Um,
0: well, and, and, and on that point, to that point, um, what can people do? Obviously, support organizations like CASE, like Resilience, like A Long Walk Home, what are some other ways that people maybe in their everyday lives or how, how can we start to chip away at this uh, as an individual, if you will?
1: I think we can, we can start by recognizing um, that there is this thing called the monster myth that interferes with our ability to even think about sexual violation intelligently. Um, essentially the, the, the truth that sexual violation is uniquely harmful and uh, and does monstrous harm to people who experience it leads people to presume that it takes a monster to engage in it, right? And so our society creates laws and punishments and penalties that are um, really only fit for monsters. And, and, you know, we live in a society that is a criminal justice system that treats you know um, black and brown men, especially low income black and brown men like monsters um but um you know it is mostly otherwise decent men who engage in sexual violation and and because um, people who experience sexual violation know that, um, they know that um that we could come up with responses that don't deny the humanity of the of the man who engaged in that but also say it's it's awful what he did and and he needs to stop um and but fundamentally i guess the thing i would say is that what people need to really pay attention to is the fact that survivors have been pointing out forever that most of the men who engage in sexual violation are otherwise normal men. And what that means is we need to come up with mechanisms for responding to sexual violation that that we're willing to apply to otherwise normal men. We have to come up with ways of saying, um, I can see that you are a decent person in a lot of contexts. Like I can see that you're a great comic, Louis C.K. And you have really insightful social commentary on things. And it's really unacceptable that you engage in the form of of sort of sexual abuse that you engage with. I'm I'm not equating him with a with a rapist. But um while there are some men like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein who are so prolific in their abuse that you know i can see why some people might use the word monster um most of the most of the men who engage in sexual violation are men more like um Matt Lauer or Al Franken mm-hmm. men who I, I mean there's a big distinction between Al Franken and Matt Lauer right mm-hmm. Matt Lauer clearly engaged in rape Al Franken um did not but in general the point is that um both of those guys are men that People had a hard time reconciling sort of mm-hmm. all the good that they knew mm-hmm. about them with the really icky that well, they were doing.
0: And I'll just say, as someone who is an avid Today Show watcher, I was floored because you're trying to reconcile the person that I see every morning on the TV screen with the stories that you've then heard by very, very brave women who who came forward to say this is this is my truth, this is my reality.
1: Right. And if we can get to a place where we can accept both of those truths, right?
0: Because they can both operate at the same time. And I think that's what's we can hold both of those ideas and, and know both of those truths.
1: That's right. And you know who mostly is capable of holding both of those truths? Survivors. They are the ones who it's it's incredibly painful at first, especially when you live in a culture that wants you to believe that only ogres Engage in sexual violation. It it sets everybody up to be shocked and stunned. If we were more honest about the fact that that rape or sexual abuse is not um, sort of uh, driven by character. It's not sort of the the outgrowth of a bad person, but it is conduct, unacceptable conduct that 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 sometimes people engage in. Right. Our culture doesn't do anybody. Um, a favor when it promotes the idea that you can judge a book by its cover and um expect that just because a man is capable of, of a lot of good things means he's not going to engage in rape. And also our society needs to um, be able to 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 hold men uh, accountable. Right. I, I think, you know, a lot of people thought that because Brett Kavanaugh, um you know was capable of being a a decent guy hiring women as his law clerks and stuff like that it somehow means he's the what was um that what he did in high school um uh didn't happen right and
0: and overall was above reproach i mean my goodness he's on his way to be a supreme court justice of course he's not that kind of person right right and we know and of course we know that that is not the case um so in terms of what people can do who feel like I want to contribute in some way I want to help what are the what are the things that you would suggest just quickly
1: I would suggest that people accept that this issue is a lot more complicated but is there something they can do more tangibly than that well if folks want to get tangibly involved they can (laughs) um uh, help support um, organizations like mine, mm-hmm. um, or like Resilience, but CASE, we're having a race yes. to, to raise funds mm-hmm. um, on June 6th. June 6th. And we are participating in the Strides for Peace race against gun violence. So um, yes, I want people to donate to CASE, and you can look on our website for ways to do that. Um, but also, if you go to the Strides for Peace race overall, we're participating with dozens of other nonprofits in the city of Chicago who also um, are doing really great and important work. But of course, we're here to talk about CASE, which I really appreciate. So
0: check out our website. CASE.org. CASE. That's right. CASE. And <laughs> consider signing up on June 6th because you could uh, you could run or walk or you could volunteer, right? That's right. That's all, exactly right. All, well, we need all kinds of help. Uh, so again, that's June 6th, uh, Race for CASE. You can go to CASE.org and find out more about CASE and also about how you can get involved because there is something that each and every one of us can do and it seems overwhelming but there is actually something we can do to help um we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back with um what's becoming one of our favorite segments and that's a few questions from our listeners okay we'll be right back you're listening to gathering ground Welcome back, everyone, to Gathering Ground. Today, our guest has been Morris Hoffer, And Ketha is the executive director of the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, also known as CASE. And we're moving to our listener questions. And so, Ketha, are you ready for this? I guess so. (laughs) You'll be fine. (laughs) So the first question is from Lily, who happens to be in Chicago. And she states sometimes... um, or oftentimes rather, nonprofits work from a place of scarcity, which hinders collaboration and unity within the sector. I see this same mentality in white supremacy. An example being if I make space for you, or meaning if I make space for you, then I'll have less space. As nonprofit professionals, how do we move above the scarcity complex? And how do we support our colleagues in moving above it?
1: It's such an important question. Mm -hmm. And um this might sound completely hokey but i'm a firm believer in the the intelligence of the magic penny song <laughs> okay, I'm, I, I'm not familiar with that okay. katha what what is the well, magic the, penny I'm not, song i'm not going to inflict my singing okay. voice on your listeners but okay. the lyrics of it are love is like a magic penny if you hold it tight you won't have any but lend it spend it and you'll have so many they'll roll all over the ground because love is something if you give it away you end up having more. And that's been my life's experience. Now, again, I am a very privileged white woman, um, so uh, it's easy for me to say, um, and I know that people have given me second chances when other people might not have given them. But my experience has been um, that acting out of generosity and and faith um, and sharing... Um, and, and, and embracing opportunities to collaborate is, is uh, the way forward. When I, um, when Rachel and I came together uh, at case in 2009, there were three of us when, when Rachel left, and I took over as ED in 2013, there were nine of us. And, and now there are 20 of us. And our our budget has grown every year our our staff size has grown every year and it's it's um and I can't think of an opportunity that we had to engage in collaboration with other nonprofits or other individuals that we turned away from um as we have really thrived um and we're really committed to collaboration and and that being the mechanism and um I know it's tough.
0: Well, one of the things that we talk about in our work, um, whether it's strategic planning or racial equity work, is really looking at the assets that we all have, because it is in some ways our conditioning uh, for us to look at what we don't have, right, to start with the deficit. So we always try to say, let's look at the assets, right? Let's look at what we do have, and then let's think about what are some of the uh, inhibitors or the accelerators. And and so this idea that if you start with your assets, which again, is not how we're socialized, I think that will go a long way toward the scarcity piece. I mean, it comes up in fundraising all the time. There's There actually is a lot of money available for all the important work that we want to do. However, we often don't approach it in that manner. Right. And uh, we don't have to be in competition, if you will, with other organizations, because again, that feeds into the the scarcity uh model but but again focusing on assets focusing on strengths yeah can make a huge difference and starting from that place i think automatically changes the na- the dynamic uh for an individual and for an organization as a whole that's right and
1: you know again um the race that we're participating in is a perfect example of that and partly why i mentioned that we're going to be one nonprofit team participating in this race out of so many others like we're not afraid to be in spaces where all of our sister and brother ally organizations are also raising funds, because we know that, you know when we all come together and demonstrate that we love each other um, for our separate and respective and discrete and overlapping expertises, um, that the that the size of the overall pie will
0: grow, and we will all flourish. Absolutely. Our second question is from Joan who's in Philadelphia. And Joan writes, as part of my work's organizational culture task force, I'm looking into how to set guidelines for celebrating life events. Oh, this is a good one. You know, birthdays, wedding shower, baby shower, goodbye parties in a way that considers our values, including DEI and feminism. I'm wondering if any of you or either of you, I should say, have done something like this before and could offer any advice or food for thought. <laughs> I think that's always... um that's always a question that comes up in an organization in terms of how you, you um, create a space where people feel welcomed and celebrated.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it, it, it's something that just requires attending to consistently because what, um, because it's the nature of sort of your staff changes. Um, you can't be sure that one system is going to work when you have a different population of staff. On staff, right? So, um, setting up, um, making sure that your that your organization's values are communicated clearly enough to say we want to be a place where the lives of everybody who's here. Um, can be seen and recognized and celebrated Um, might look very different if you have a a lot of women who are having babies one year. Um, And, you know, if you are having a situation where uh, a a lot of women on your staff are having babies, or a lot of people on your staff are adopting kids, um, then that's a year in which you probably want to do a lot more intentional. Like, what what about the lives of people who don't have kids in them, right? Like how can we make sure that we're creating space so that we're not um, by celebrating and honoring one person's life. And excluding the other people. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just going to look different
0: every year. And what do you do at Case?
1: Well, um, it it, it sort of continues to be... Evolving over time. Yeah, it evolves over time. Some years it's really clear that... um, that pastries are the way to go. (laughs) Can't go wrong with some pastries. Um, um, We have uh, sort of a, a board, a whiteboard that has come to be used in the last year as a mechanism for highlighting and celebrating Mm. um, people. People are using it for sort of shout outs. Um, And, um, but, but again, it's, it is an ongoing subject of conversation, and and tossing it out to the group as a whole, essentially, you know,
0: taking the temperature,
1: taking the temperature, um, asking, um, you know, given that we want to have um, at least a couple what are called staff fun days every year, asking what are the things that people want to have that would feel restorative, that would feel honoring, making sure that in our annual um, climate questionnaire, there are questions that that um, create space for people to say, this is the kind of thing that would make me feel valued. Um, so it, a combination of sort of setting up structures that are consistently recruiting information, um, and then also demonstrating um, by actions
0: that we can pivot on a dime, we're and... flexible. We're adaptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Joan from Philadelphia, I think in short, check in with your your task force and with the rest rest of your staff. Ask people what they think because it will change over time, and as the the uh, staff changes, so will their ideas about how to be celebratory. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But I think it. What's most important is that you do celebrate each other I don't think we do enough of that and I don't think we do enough of our um, I don't think we celebrate enough of our successes overall and so I think there's always room for more celebration myself as someone who celebrates their their birthday all month but that's, <laughs> that's something else um, but Kaita, thank you so much It's been wonderful having you on Gathering Ground. I want to remind our listeners that you can find out more information about the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation by going to case.org. And, um, you know, if you want to be outside and get some exercise, and if you really want to do your bit, because, again, everyone can do something, think about joining them on Saturday, June 6th for the race for case. And until next time, I'm Mary Morton, and this has been Gathering Ground.